Welcome to The Naked Monk. The Naked Monk is for those exploring life and the human condition. We are interested in ideas that were once the domain of religion or spirituality, but which today include existentialism, even atheism. Call it philosophy as a way of life, the yearning not just for what feels good, but for what is good. Hi, I'm Stephen Scatini. I was raised Catholic before I trained in depth as a Buddhist monk. Today I'm untethered, but I'm as fascinated as ever by what life can be and the creativity with which we pursue it. My guests and I are seekers of freedom, a deep life, and the wisdom of the heart. Come on in and join us. I'm talking today with Martine Batchelor. Martine is a Buddhist teacher and writer who was ordained as a nun in Korea in 1975. She has written articles on the Korean way of tea, on Buddhism and women, Buddhism and ecology, and Zen cooking. She's interested in meditation in daily life, and in Buddhism as social action. In this conversation, we talk about her youthful anarchism and how it was disrupted by Buddhism, about her teaching style and how much she's learned from her students. We talk about the different types of Buddhism and the normalization of Buddhism in modern life. She describes her focus on the threefold training of ethics, meditation and wisdom, and discusses the ways in which she and her husband Stephen Batchelor have influenced one another's teaching. Here is our conversation. I'm speaking this morning or this afternoon with Martine Batchelor. Hello, Martine. Hello, Stephen. We're asking again the same question, does Buddhism matter? In this case, we're going to make it, I think, uh, something much more personal. This is about how Buddhism has mattered to Martine. Now, in, in the, the Korean tradition that you studied, did you have the same detailed philosophical explanations? Did you go through the Four Truths, the, the Eightfold Path? Oh, yeah, I mean, you have that, but that is like very much in the background. You see, normally in Korea, they have the, the, all the trainings together. So they have the ethic, the meditation, the wisdom. And the, now it's different. But when we were there, 75, we were the first Westerners. So Stephen was lucky. He arrived already ordained, and they accepted his ordination. Me, I was lucky insofar that since we did, I did not speak the language, then I could not really be sent for four years to study the sutta, which that's what monks and nuns do. And then after four years of studying the sutta, then they the text. You're sent to a special school for that? Is, is that what you mean? No, what I'm saying is that it's historical. In 75, they, they, we were just very few Westerners in Korea. They did not really know what to do with us. We did not know Chinese, we did not speak Korean. So when we asked to become monks and nuns, they said, all right. And then we did the being postulant, which is working in the kitchen and this. And we got ordination quite fast. When nowadays, which is 30 years later, if you want a Western person wants to be a monk or a nun, they have to go to the sutra study, they have to know the language, they have to know the Chinese before they can get ordained. 
and also they need a special visa. Well, in our days, they could actually wrangle from a tourist visa to a resident visa. Now you really can't do this anymore. This was 75. So because of that, normally the Korean monks and nuns would study the ethical text, some ethical text, like the Bodhisattva precept, some Zen text, some basic Korean text. And then later on in the fourth year, they will study the Mahayana Sutra. And nowadays they might also study the early Sutta. You didn't do any of that? No, no, but I went straight in meditating 10 hours a day. What were you meditating on? Just on the, the why do the question, what is this? Or why did Dao Chu said no? That's all. And what sort of mentoring did you get? What sort of feedback did you get from, from the teacher? Not much. You see, in Korea, it's really, you could see, we could see really this the difference between Japanese Zen, where they really push you all the time, checking you, pushing you, uh, having interview every day, three times a day. Well, with the Korean, we just kind of, I mean, we saw the master once every two weeks because I, I did the translation and he gave a Dharma talk every two weeks. We could see him anytime we wanted, maybe once every three months, because it was a three-month retreat, he would ask us once to come, but that was more formal than anything else. No, no, it was, in a way, sink or swim. But as a group, you weren't, you weren't isolated. Yeah, so you were, I mean, like, uh, if you are Korean monks or Korean nun, uh, it's not in silence a retreat. So then at tea time, generally the elder, you might have little Zen story or whatever. It's a much more loose uh, system. And also it's a system where they believe in your independence. I mean, of course, if you want to go to the master, if you go to, you can go and ask questions to anybody. But they're not behind you all the time. They believe that, you know, it's up to you. What was it that kept you? How long were you there? Ten years. So what was it What was it that motivated you to remain and, and continue that lifestyle? I was fantastic. I mean, twice a year, you sit three, three months, ten hours a day. I mean, you know, this is rare place you can do that. Great teacher, great people, great place. I mean... What do you mean by a great teacher? Well, Master Kuzan was great. And then I could, every free season, I could go and see other teachers. But what teaching were you getting from him? Well, I mean, his talk were quite good, actually. I mean, what was, I was lucky because I, I became the translator. So I kind of, you know, before he gave his formal talk, well, his formal talk was all written in Chinese. And then after that, you had the an informal talk. So the formal talk, which was short, he would give to me a little beforehand. I would translate it. So then we could, he could say to the people, and I knew what he was saying, after we met him, after the formal talk to everybody, we would go to his room and he, we would look at that together. But I think I learned more, from, I learned from his teaching, like from his Dharma talks, they were very good. And also I went to see other Dharma teachers and I listened to them, asked questions if necessary. So then Dharma started to infiltrate your, your anarchism. Yeah, I mean, you see, 
the reason I did the meditation was because I was an anarchist. I was very idealistic when I was 18. And then I could tell myself, don't be egoist, don't be jealous, don't be this, don't be that. It had no effect whatsoever. So I thought, well, maybe I should do something which will make a difference. Then I heard about meditation, and then I did the meditation in Korea. And very fast, I saw it work. What does that mean, it worked? Well, it worked insofar I became more aware, I became more compassionate. Because, I mean, my, my thing is about wisdom and compassion. So as long as I can develop that, I am on my way. I'm happy with that. It's not a small thing. So what has Buddhism meant to you then, and how has it evolved for you over the last 30 years? Because you left that situation, you married Stephen, and you've, you've established a career as a traveling teacher. Would that be accurate? Yeah, you could say that I am a, a minor traveling teacher and writer. But I mean, I, while I was a, a teacher, I was also a house cleaner, then I was a coordinator, so I am adaptable. Well, to me, I mean, it, back to the same thing, back to wisdom and compassion. That, that's what I'm interested in. That's what I want to work with. So through my different incarnation, you could say that I'd be a nun, that I'd be in a Buddhist community, that I'd be near a Buddhist community, that I'd be now, I am in a very, like, I'm going backwards in the framework of Buddhism, going from the top to the bottom. And uh, I'm just trying to cultivate awareness, cultivate wisdom, compassion, learn from situation. And share your insights and compassion as well. Yeah, yeah, that's the idea. If I can help others, then... Tell me a little bit about teaching, how you feel about teaching and, and the impact that it seems to have on modern people today. You told me that you just completed a weekend retreat with relative newcomers to, to Buddhist meditation. Could you speak a little more about that? Yeah, I mean, personally, uh, there is two, two things to look in terms of teaching. Uh, personally, I think that teaching is also a great learning process. Because personally, I feel meditation is about learning to be as aware of yourself as of others. And so when you teach others, then the way I teach, people can easily feedback to me. I am quite a multi-choice, easygoing telling lots of uh, funny story teacher. I don't, I don't put on air, I'm just like ordinary. So personally, what I do is actually learn from people. Learn, if I teach this way, you know, like I have interviews, there is also lots of discussions, but I also do private interviews. And then from the private interview, I can see, oh, this person needs this, that person needs this. Oh, I said this, I understood it this way. So I learned a lot. And that's why becoming multi-choice teacher, because I can see that you can make some suggestions and people according to their inner and outer condition will take them in different way, apply them in different way. So that now I'm, I'm really trying to be the least, least, not, not dogmatic if I can. And to really give them a choice. Try this, try that. I see. So talking to these newcomers this last weekend, where, where did you begin? 
did you start with a story about the Buddha or, or did you start with a, an abstract theory or you just sat them down and... No, no, I never, I, I mean, I, uh, since it was a lot, I mean, there was 25 people, about seven were people who had meditated before and the rest are really not done very much and nothing very Buddhist. So in that context, I don't talk about the Buddha, I don't talk about Buddhism, and basically I just talk about mindfulness, I talk about habits, I talk about working with habits and things of that nature. So what I say, maybe the whole weekend I might have used two or three words which was a little Buddhist, Vipassana, and also Mudita, but apart from that, I used ordinary French words, and I'm really kind of, in a way, relating about queuing in the supermarket, being mindful when you drive, looking at how you think, looking at a little, but not so much, we did not have the time about the feeling tone, how it impels you to do this or that. Generally very practical. So the impression I'm getting is that more important than Buddhism is simply the act of turning inwards. That it's not important to you to convey a strict Buddhist envelope around the way you're teaching yeah i am i am adaptable if 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 i feel people really want buddhism then i can do buddhism but most of the time i am more into how can what i say help people right now so buddhism to me is a little kind of a the the wider context like in terms of personally I can know technically about the history, about certain theory, about this, that, and another. I am interested in it if I am with people who are interested in it and the sutta and thing of that nature. But if I teach a retreat, then I generally, like, if I teach a retreat with Stephen, Stephen do the Buddhism, but it's kind of like the secular Buddhism anyway. And me, I do more the pragmatic thing. How it is, how what we're doing now is going to be helpful in my daily life. I am not per se into like telling people about Buddhism unless they really ask me to say, to say about it. So what's your perception of the way that the Buddhism is growing in the West and expanding and becoming secularized? And do you think it's really taking root in a, in a, in a special way? Well, you see, I personally, what I see is that actually there are different Buddhisms. So I think there is one thing which we, we never thought would happen, is that like when in 75, Buddhism was really kind of really on the fringe. And Buddhism was made fun of, and you know, it was like people generally laughed about it, or it was a cult or whatever. And we would never have thought that then it would become within 20 years considered quite a nice religion, quite a peaceful religion, quite a nice thing to do. So that from being fringe, it becomes normal. So I, I feel that Buddhism in a way has been positively normalized. And then after that, in terms of the different development of Buddhism, what I see is that you have uh, what I would call like the fundamentalist Buddhist trend, you have traditional Buddhist trend. You have uh, what I would call pragmatic, practical Buddhist trend. And then you have secular Buddhist trend. So that's with Buddhism. But then within Buddhism, 
you have like the main a big thing is uh, meditation, and then from meditation, then you get the Buddhist meditation and also the mindfulness movement, which then is making this Buddhism like that's what is kind of weird. It's kind of like a bit like the Trojan horse in a way that. John Calvin, who was very much, I mean, he was doing lots of Buddhist retreat, create this mindfulness, which is applicable to anybody. And then what we find is that people go on to all this uh, mindfulness-based course, MBCT, MBSR, etc. And then often from there, they come on Buddhist retreat because they want to know either more about meditation or they want to know more about Buddhism. And for you, at the heart of all this is meditation. Well, no, as for me, uh, in terms of uh, what I do, what I'm interested in, I would say you have the three training, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And so when I, when I teach meditation retreat, it's very much within, yes, we do meditation retreat, but within an ethical framework, and in order to develop a wisdom we can take into the world. Because I, I teach mainly meditation retreat, it's different than if I was a uh, professor of Buddhism, then I would look more at the theory, the philosophy, and things of that nature. But since I am a specialist more of meditation, that's what interests me. But I don't see meditation separate from the three training. I think this is really very important to have the ethics, meditation, and wisdom together. Do you think that that's not always the case, that a lot of people still consider Buddhism to be equivalent to meditation alone? Well, no, I think uh, some people actually don't care about Buddhism. I mean, they're really not interested in Buddhism. I mean, when we started in England, in that community, they, at the beginning, they called themselves the not-not-Buddhist. In, in Gaia House. No, before Gaia House, it was a Buddhist community. I mean, not before Gaia House, but there was a, an adjunct community, and they called themselves the not-not-Buddhist or whatever, kind of like, we don't want to be anything. And now I feel people kind of either they say, I am just into meditation, or like myself, I would say, well, I do Buddhist meditation. But yeah, for people who are into meditation, generally, uh, a lot of them not, are not necessarily into Buddhism, unless, again, it depends on tradition. Because certain traditions, like the Japanese tradition, they're really into meditation, they're not very much into ethics. So then that becomes like a little trigger, a little kind of like focus they have. But I think, again, in each tradition, it gets a little different. And then when it's taken into the West, it kind of gets changed sometime or not. Because you also get like, uh, engaged Buddhism nowadays. Personally, I'm very interested in engaged Buddhism. But again, it's kind of interesting to see that actually engaged Buddhism as a construct, I think, is less active as people who do meditation and then want to bring that meditation in their social work. Can you describe a little more detail what engaged Buddhism means to you? Because it's certainly not a formalized discipline, is it? Well, you see, engaged Buddhism was coined in a way by Thich Nhat Hanh uh, 30 years ago. But personally, I feel, uh, as somebody say, you cannot say engaged Buddhism because normally 
all Buddhism should be engaged because all Buddhism should be ethical and Buddhism should answers to the suffering of the world. And then it's a question of, you know, if you have a propensity toward that, if you're interested in this or not, everybody has different personality, interest, thing of that nature. And so what, what I found uh, interesting is that lots of people are trying to bring either Buddhism, either meditation, either mindfulness, either in a way which makes difference to society or in a way which helps with the suffering in society, like in prison, like with a, a nuclear power things, or kind of like Joanna Macy. But I feel it seems to me that the people were so far the Buddhists, I feel, are very fringe in terms of talking about social context. But I think in terms of personally doing things, I think people are more clued up because in their own framework, they know. Like if you're a social worker, if you're a nurse, if you're a doctor, if you're a therapist, if you work in prison, then you know the situation, you've been trained for that situation. And then if you add mindfulness of meditation or Buddhism to it, then it can add another flavor. This is very interesting, the way you described that, because you talked just now about the normalization of Buddhism over the last 20 or 30 years in the West. And that has coincided with a rapid decline in our ancestral religions, especially Christianity, which was very much socially engaged and very community oriented. So now with people looking towards Buddhist sorts of lifestyles as a way of filling that, what you might call a spiritual gap, they're doing it without so much getting involved socially. There's less social cohesion in their spiritual connection. Would you say that's true? Would you, how would you like to talk about that? You see, I would not look at it that way. Personally, I think... I mean, in America, Christianity is not good, it's very alive. It's very different, yeah. And so I think we have to be careful about this uh, generally, this statement, because you see, it's a problem with all, all kinds of situations. You have a religion. It's actually like, you know, I mean, until recently, uh, Christianity was a main religion, like Catholicism in Italy. Catholicism in France, then Anglicanism. But you see, you have to even see with Christianity, you had different brands. So you had actually, if you had a Catholicism who was totally connected with the state, in the same way you have Buddhism totally connected with the state, generally the Buddhism or the Catholicism serve the state. But within that, you might have a little branch which say, wait a minute, what the state is doing is not good and we need to question it. And so that, I think, is in any religion. And so personally, I'm not so sure that Buddhism is replacing Christianity. I think people, you know, do different things with different religion in different ways in different countries. But I think it's in different, you see, you have so many different contexts for that. You can use Buddhism in different ways. You can, if you're a traditional person, you can use it very traditionally. And you can do good works traditionally. Or if you have somebody who is a little kind of uh, doing things a little different, you will do it that Buddhism a little different. 
Yeah, but the way in which you were describing Buddhism as, as becoming normalized now, that, that is something that is very individualistic, I think, isn't it? It's not becoming normalized in, in, in any institutional way, not yet. In fact, the, the great institutions of Buddhism uh, in the West seem to be, they don't seem to have much of a future. Tibetan Buddhism and, and the various Japanese schools and even Theravadan Buddhism as, as in their Asian forms do not seem to be growing anymore in the West. I suspect they're going to go into decline. Well, no, I think that in a way that they are for a certain type of people, uh, Asian and uh, Western, who are interested in traditional form. But they don't really constitute what you're calling the normalization of Buddhism in, in the modern world, do they? No, no, I would say, because I was talking more in terms of discourse. You see, before Buddhism was seen in the 60s, 70s, Buddhism was seen as strange, as different, mm -hmm. as foreign. Yeah. Now it's entered the common discourse for good or bad. I mean, you can see all the ads with people sitting in lotus or even with ads with the Dalai Lama or whoever. Yeah. Or you can see like in London many years ago, there was this on the buses, it was Zen shampoo or whatever <laughs> it is. At the level of the discourse, it's been normalized. Then at the level of easy entering, uh, what you would call like the zeitgeist of the people who make things happen. That I think is uh, far, is a few here and there, but not, it does not impinge as such yet. I don't think so. But do you see that as a tendency, as, a, as an evolving tendency? No, that I would say is what's going to happen with the younger people. You see, I feel that the older people like myself, like you, we, we kind of like approach it in a more, we practice, we trade in a traditional way. We were more in a hierarchical way. We come from a certain history of the world, the, the 60s, the 70s, 80s. What I think is interesting now is actually the people from 20 to 40 actually doing Buddhism, doing meditation, and, and actually really questioning a lot of different things and trying to apply it in different ways. That to me is what interests me and to see if there, like with the Occupy movement, in a lot of the Occupy thing, you had some Buddhists in there, kind of, you know, bringing some stuff in it. I noticed that, yeah. Yeah, so I think it will be interesting to see if those people actually do something to Buddhism that then will kind of uh, have an impact. So that's one, one thing to look at. But also it will be interesting to see if all this mindfulness is actually just like a fashion. You know, like if you look historically, every 20 years, you have a different thing. You have Freud, you have Lacan, you have Jung, you have this, you have transpersonal, you have Krishnamurti, you have this, you have that. So is mindfulness going to be more like a fashion or is mindfulness going to become like sociology or going to become like therapy, something which becomes part and parcel of our society, of kind of like a skillful mean of the society. That to me will be interesting to see 
will it be like kind of just like a souffle, beautiful, but then it goes poof? Or will people be able to apply it in such a way that it will make enough of a difference that then people will continue to springboard on it and develop it? So it's not like theosophy will become a little dusty, but it's really something which will have its own impetus, can enter the society, can make a difference to the society, and become part of society. Like even if you discuss Freud, still it had an impact on the society, and it's still there. And it was really developed over time. Will it be the same? That will be interesting to see. I think it's early days. Stephen actually, uh, Stephen, your husband actually expressed some optimism about that. Uh, personally, I am, uh, how do you say, uh, tendency to be uh, skeptical, but I am skeptically optimistic too. But we have to see, we have to see. I mean, like I have a lot of people I know working like what I would call like the cold face of that. Like I have a friend who has uh, created a manual for teacher, mindful education. And he showed it to me and I was really impressed how creative it was. And so in a way it really was not Buddhistic at all, but really using the Buddhistic idea in a way which you transmute into being practical nowadays. And then if it's the same in the medical field, then it will be interesting if, it, if it's good enough. This is a question. Is it good enough? that it can work for nearly, not everybody, but nearly. And then it becomes like common. I think, I, I feel quite optimistic about it actually. I think it's really at a basic enough level and a humanistic enough level uh, that it can very much take root. But one thing that I've noticed, which is very interesting is that much of the, the stuff of Buddhism, whether we're talking about the causes of suffering or the nature of mind um, or the human condition. These are all ideas which already existed before in the West and in the Greek philosophical tradition. And these have already been explored and, and they, they already have roots in the West. Even the notion of emptiness and, and, and existential angst is, is already, there's already some sort of connection there. But mindfulness, when we look before the days that, that Buddhism was even a fringe in the West, I don't really see a source or, or an antecedent for, uh, for the mindfulness um, approach to life. It does seem to be something new for us. Well, I mean, Stephen would say that the Stoic might have had a little similar ideas, but not so much technically, not technically, not so much kind of, you see, I think, is kind of like at that level, especially with the early Parisutta and also how it was developed over time. It's kind of like the, the Buddhists took, like at the level of ethics, they in a way did not develop, as you say, something very different. I mean, they did have situational ethics, which is different a little from some, but in a way it's true that they took meditation and they really developed it in a way possibly nobody else has developed it. Yeah, there's an integrity to Buddhism which, which sets it apart. It's, uh, it's the way in which all, all the ideas and the, the, the practices come together. Integrity, I don't know. 
but creativity, I would say. Ah. Because you see, what we, what, we, what we are inheriting is a creativity that has happened around meditation. Because you see, around ethics, not much has changed. I mean, it's the same rules, it's the same stuff, more or less. You know, you have, I mean, you have about three, I mean, I'm interested in ethics. And so you have three different sets. You have the set for the monks and the nuns. You have the one of different groups. You have the Bodhisattva precepts. At the moment, you have Chiknatan trying a new type of precepts. But you, you don't have, you know, it's not like kind of like wild kind of things to, to look at. And in terms of, term of the wisdom, then there was a different development, like in terms of what the Gelugpa did, in terms of some of what the, some of the Zen did with the only mind school, and then some of the Madhyamikan things. But in a way, in terms of, uh, I would say, real creativity, meditation, that's where, you know, they really did the meditation. And every person who meditated actually brought a little stone to that. That's a very nice perspective. It's very true as well. Yeah, and, and each of us is doing the same. I think to me what... I feel we have to be careful is to think what we inherit is like, you know, set in stone from the beginning. When actually I think when I look at the way I teach, the way my friend teach, the way I uh, change my teaching a little or adapt it or thing like this, what I do myself, to me what we inherit is all these different people trying things so they get to get instructions. And then from that, you know, be mindful, be mindful of the breath, be mindful of the body, be mindful of the mental factor. You get things as different as Masi Sayadaw noting to Uttejaniya saying, just be mindful, don't note, even within one tradition. And then if you look at the Zen, they have different idea. And then, the, of course, the Tibetan have different ideas. But it all comes down to some sort of mental evolution or, or clarity. To, to me, it really comes down, actually, the meditation comes down to cultivating samatha and vipassana in whatever form. And then that creates, develop uh, creative awareness, creative mindfulness, which then you can apply to question uh, creatively, your thought, your feeling, your habits. So if you were to go into the future a hundred years and you wanted to see what effects that Buddhism had had on, on modern life, you'd be looking for it in, in creative terms. Yeah, I would look at, did it, did it infiltrate? Because that's one place it does not really infiltrated very much. Did it infiltrate the arts, contemporary arts? Did he, did he, I think one of the big things, which by, that would be very interesting to see if it happens. Will Asian philosophy finally be accepted with the same value as Greek philosophy in uh, Western uh, academia? That would be very interesting if that shifts. In terms of meditation, it will be interesting to see if the mindfulness movement can really settle and was developed in the hospital, in the prison, in education. Then you have uh, Tim Ryan and mindfulness in the States, but we'll see if that happens. <laughs> Become politicized. 
Well, I have a friend uh, who is teaching MPs in the Parliament, mindfulness to MPs in uh, the Parliament in England. But they're only Labour's MP, a few of them, and they're very stressed. So that they're using it simply as a form of stress relief, and maybe some of them will go a little further. Exactly. So we'll, we'll from stress release, will they make them, but you see, I think politics is so power hungry that it will be hard. Interesting to see if mindfulness can change that. Well, if when you work in politics, you know that at least half the people hate you. So I'm sure you need some sort of coping mechanism to deal with that. So, Martin, I have to ask you this, because before you met Stephen Batchelor, your husband, he and I were monks together in Switzerland under Geshe Rabton, and uh, I've known him uh, almost as long as I've known Buddhism. And I'm very interested to see the way he's changed, and especially to see the way that you have influenced him, uh, and of course the way that he has influenced you. What could you say about that? Well, when I first met it, met Stephen, he seemed to me for the first six months uh, a little anxious about having left Geshe Rapton. He seemed to be, I don't know, he felt a little anxious about it. And I personally, I was like, what's the matter? <laughs> what's the matter with this? You know, I mean, he's just, just uh, you know, a teacher, you come here, you know, you can always write to him if you want, but, you know, what's the matter to be anxious about? So, but what was very nice is that uh, as he got used to being in Korea and the relationship with the teacher is so different in Korea that I felt over time he, he, yeah, he did not have this at all anxious relationship with uh, Master Cousin. And he was able to, I think, have, have a very good uh, kind of relationship with him, which was, he, you know, he would uh, ask him questions, Master Cousin would send him back to meditate, and he was able not to get into a kind of like, what I would say, a, a sticky place with uh, the tradition in Korea. I see. So what... what... Through Stephen, what was your perception then of Tibetan Buddhism? Was this your first encounter with a Tibetan Buddhist or an ex-Tibetan Buddhist? Well, I mean, I did not know anything about... I mean, I met Tibetan Buddhism. It's not true. I met Tibet... I was in 74. I was at one of the Black Hat ceremony of the Karmapa in London twice. Okay. Then I met, uh, just the beginning of 75 or end of 74, I met um, Carol Rinpoche in uh, the south of France. But I read something from Tibetan Buddhism and it really put me off because I read something which said that if you were handicapped or if you were disabled in any way, you could not hope to become a Buddha or something or something of that nature. And I thought, this is discriminatory. I mean, I was an anarchist. I thought, wait a minute, if they believe this, I am not interested. So I did, that's all I did with uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And I was more interested in Zen anyway. So, and when Stephen came, he was not really like, you know, pushing the Tibetan line at all. So, but what was interesting with uh, having to, because at some point we worked together on a book of Master Cousin's teaching. 
And what was interesting was actually his rigor. He kind of forced me to be a little more logical, a little more rigorous, because we were trans I, I had translated the text and we were looking at the English, because I had translated all the talks and then we were putting it into a, a book and so he, he was putting it in better English. And then we were working on the text and then he said, I, he said, that's not logical. And I said, well, it does not matter. Then it's not logical. And they said, wait a minute. Even then, as it's so logic. And that was actually very helpful for me to, to kind of think, wait a minute. You know, I'm, because that's a, a little one of the problems is that, that, you know, it must be weird and, you know, it doesn't make sense. And here Stephen was saying there is an internal logic. And that was actually very helpful after that for translation, because I remember shortly after I was translating Master Kuzan teaching and he was saying something. And first I was going to say it's like an eye, an eyeball falling onto a hot stove. I was going to say that, and I thought, wait a minute, even for that, this is not logical. Stephen is right. And then I thought, wait a minute, it's noon. And noon also can mean snowflakes. And then I thought, that's better. So then I said, it's like a snowflake falling onto a hot stove. So that was good. With Stephen, I learned from one side, I learned a little more intellectual rigor. But the other thing which really kind of was helpful because we had the chance was when, when I met him, I was more dogmatic about Zen. And him, he was not dogmatic about Tibetan Buddhism whatsoever. He was getting out of it. Okay, now you, you were dogmatic about something which you didn't think necessarily had to have any internal logic. How does that work? Well, but dogmatic more into, you know, this is a way, this is a true, true way. That's nothing to do with intellect, more to do with, you know, that's all you know. Because at that point, that's all I knew. And then, you know, I would say kind of, I would make statement. I can't remember what statement, like, you know, Zen is like this, or Buddhism, I don't know what kind of statement. It's even what's way to be there. You know, you also have this, you also have that, you also have that. So to me, that's one of the things, in a way, uh, Stephen, it was useful to meet him. He was questioning if I made like what I would say dogmatic statement. And then since my tendency also is not to be very dogmatic, then it was, it easily helped me not to be so. So you're an anarchist who became dogmatic and then was quickly freed of your dogmatism. <laughs> exactly. What you've heard in today's podcast, visit thenakedmonk.com. You'll find an entire webpage devoted to this and other podcasts, as well as dozens of provocative blog posts. You can leave comments, chat with other visitors, and email me, Stephen Scatini, with your comments and questions. The music on this Naked Monk podcast is The Sound of Vibor by David Kuckerman from his CD, The Path of the Metal Turtle. The Naked Monk is a labor of love. If you'd like to support our work, you'll find a donate button on the left side of our website, just under the logo. Or if you think there's somewhere you can help the Naked Monk grow, please send me an email. 
Thanks for listening. See you next time.